My name is Linky Trot and I head up the employment team at Edwin Co. We act for both employers and employees in a broad range of sectors, including professional services, advertising, manufacturing, hospitality, care and retail companies. Today I'm going to discuss the case of the Harper Trust and Brazil, which gave some guidance on the calculation of holiday pay. Before moving on to the details of that case, I wanted to give a bit of background to the issues that arise in connection with holiday and holiday pay. As I'm sure everyone knows, employees are entitled to a minimum period of holiday of 5.6 weeks a year. This is a right contained in the Working Time Regulations 1998. This is an enhancement to the minimum four weeks annual holiday that the European Working Time Directive said all employees should get, and that is known as Euroleave. When an employee goes on holiday, they are entitled to be paid. Under the Working Time Regulations, an employee is entitled to be paid a week's pay for a week's leave. And a week's pay is calculated in accordance with the principles set out in the Employment Rights Act 1996. So the question that tribunals have been grappling with is if someone goes on holiday, how much should they be paid? You would have thought it was quite straightforward, but I'm afraid lawyers and legislators have made it fiendishly complicated. It is fairly straightforward for someone on an annual salary who has regular weekly working hours. Take, for example, someone who earns £52,000 a year and works Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. 5.6 weeks holiday is 28 days of holiday and if they take a week's holiday, five working days, they're entitled to £1,000 of pay for that week of holiday, 52000 divided by 50, 52 weeks. Uh, but what about the following types of workers? Those who work on a 24-7 production line where they work shifts which can vary from week to week and therefore the hours and days of work and pay vary from week to week. Uh, or ad hoc workers who work every now and then, say for a hospitality company, which means they can work an 11-hour shift but then not work for that business again for a number of days, weeks or months. How much holiday do they get for that 11-hour shift? When do they take that holiday and how much should they be paid for it? Or an individual who always volunteers for paid overtime, meaning that they do some overtime every week, but the amount can vary depending on the amount of time of overtime available and the rate at which it is paid. That means their weekly salary is always higher than their basic monthly salary, but it is a different amount each week. And what about pilots and cabin crew who get an additional allowance when they fly, meaning that their weekly hours and pay dep varies depending on their flying schedule? A large body of case law has developed over the last 10 years or so, uh, which tries to grapple with those issues. And what has emerged is a fairly complicated picture, particularly for those with variable working patterns and variable pay. Whilst a discussion about the overall picture is beyond the scope of what I was hoping would be a fairly short video, I wanted to talk about the case of the Harper Trust in Brazil, which was dealt with by the Supreme Court in July of this year. Mrs. Brazil was a part-time worker and also a part-year worker.
She was a music teacher, so she had non-working weeks during her school holidays. During school terms, Mrs. Brazell worked different hours each week, usually about 10 to 12 hours, but it varied from week to week. And she was paid for the hours that she actually worked and she had no minimum guaranteed hours. The arrangement was that she would take her 5.6 weeks of annual leave during the three tranches of school holidays when she was not required to give music lessons or at such other times convenient to the school. She was therefore treated as having taken her entitlement to her 5.6 weeks in three equal tranches of 1.87 weeks during the three school holidays. Mrs. Brazell's employer, the Harper Trust, originally calculated her holiday pay by working out how much she had been paid in the 12 term time weeks before the school holidays. Those 12 weeks were taken because 12 weeks was the relevant reference period that applied at the time of her employment when calculating a week's pay. It's now changed to 52 weeks, but for the purposes of this case, it was 12 weeks. So taking the 12 week reference period, her employer totted up the 12 weeks term time earnings and then divided that figure by 12 to get a weekly pay figure. Mrs. Brazell was then paid one third of that, 1.87 weeks, during one of the three school holidays. This method of calculation is referred to as the calendar week method. However, in September 2011, her employer amended the way that it calculated her holiday pay by calculating 12.07% of her hours worked in the term immediately prior to the school holiday and paying her her hourly rate for those number of hours. The basis for using the 12.07% is that if you subtract the 5.6 weeks of holiday a year from 52 weeks, you get 46.4 weeks. And take it from me, 5.6 weeks is 12.07% of the 46.4 working weeks in a year. This is known as the percentage method. And the percentage method was recommended by ACAS in their holiday pay guide in respect of casual workers or those with variable hours. And it was described as being the easiest approach where there are variable working patterns. So what difference did this make for Mrs. Brazell? If we look at how these different approaches impacted her holiday pay for the school holidays following the spring term, the results are as follows. Under the calendar week method, the spring term uh, in 2012 was only 10 weeks. So two additional weeks were taken from the prior term, which would be included to make up the full 12 week reference period, which is now 52 weeks. Mrs. Brazell's total hours worked during that 12-week period were 149 and a half hours. If you multiply those hours by her hourly rate of £29.50, she was paid a total sum of £4,410.25 for that 12-week period. So if we divide that by 12 to work out the weekly average, that resulted in a week's holiday pay of 367 52 pence.
This weekly sum was then multiplied by 1.87, which gave a total sum of £687.26 to be paid to her for her one-third of her annual holiday entitlement during that school holiday. Turning now to the percentage method, over the spring term there were in fact 10 weeks and under the percentage method you just take that 10 week reference period rather than taking the additional two weeks from the autumn term as you do under the calendar week method. Mrs Brazell worked 127 hours over that 10 week period. So if we take 127 hours and multiply it by 12.07% we get 15.33 hours. And this was multiplied by Mrs. Brazell's hourly rate of £29.50, resulting in a sum of £452.20. It was that sum that was then multiplied by 1.87 to calculate her entitlement to her one-third entitlement to her holiday. The difference in the calculations amounts to £235.06. That was effectively a shortfall. Mrs Brazell brought claims for unlawful deduction of wages in respect of her holiday and the change in the way it had been, the pay had been calculated. Um, the Supreme Court agreed with Mrs Brazell. It should be calculated by reference to the calendar week method, not the percentage method. It said that the annual leave does not accrue based on hours work and it rejected the percentage method. The Supreme Court held that holiday entitlement for a worker on a permanent contract throughout the holiday year is 5.6 weeks even if the worker does not work every week of the holiday year. So what does this mean? Well firstly it does away with the idea of calculating holiday entitlement and pay by reference to the 12.07% percentage method. This makes it difficult to calculate holiday for the casual ad hoc worker that I mentioned earlier who works for a hospitality or events company for an 11 hour shift and then may not work again for a number of days or weeks. Traditionally, those employers were paid holiday by reference to that 12.07% of the hours worked multiplied by their hourly rate. And this is no longer permissible if there's an underlying permanent contract. The case also clarified that for workers without normal weekly working hours, holiday is 5.6 weeks each holiday year and the amount they should be paid should be based on an average weekly pay in the 52 weeks, which is now the reference period, not the 12 weeks it was for Ms Brazell, prior to the first day of the holiday period in question. If the worker has been employed for less than 52 weeks, then the reference period is the number of complete weeks the worker has been employed. And note, the average weekly pay should include normal remuneration for Euro leave. In Mrs Brazell's case, this was her hourly rate, but for some it could include regular overtime, commission, bonuses, travel allowances. But what is normal remuneration is a whole other discussion. In calculating average weekly pay, if there are weeks during that 52-week reference period in which nothing was payable because they didn't work, then those weeks are excluded and earlier weeks are brought in to make up the 52 weeks of work. The period employers should look back to to get to that 52 weeks is capped at a total of 104 weeks. Whilst this decision gives some clarity, it doesn't answer some of the practical questions that arise. 
For example, the reference period is 52 weeks, but it can be up to 104 weeks. And that can be difficult and complicated to calculate in practice for hard-pressed HR teams with many demands on their time, working out which weeks count, which weeks do not count, how much was paid as part of normal remuneration during each of those working weeks. As ever, the employment team is very happy to discuss holiday pay entitlements for anyone struggling to understand what needs to be included and how to calculate it. We will also keep an eye on future developments and publish any updates on our blogs, so please do sign up to receive them. Thank you.